You are listening to the official Sasta podcast with me, your host, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings, with two Bs on Snapchat, and brought to you by the main man at Sasta, the one and only Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. It'd be great to see you there. But to the episode today, and I have to say, I absolutely love recording this one. We had a schedule agreed upon before the show, but the minute we got into the content, I realised I simply couldn't stop asking questions. So I very much hope you enjoy it, and I'm thrilled to welcome Promise Velon to the show today. Promise is the CEO at Tap Influence, bringing the first ever influencer marketing platform to the Fortune 1000. Under Promise's leadership, the companies enjoyed a 300% increase in revenue in 2015 alone. They made the successful transition from a services to a SaaS model and were successful in raising a fantastic 14 million Series B round. Prior to Tap Influence, Promise was the founder and CEO at two startups, one of which, the Felon Group, grew to eight figures in revenue and was successfully acquired in 2009. Before that, Promise got her start at BEA Systems. I do also want to say a big thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro to Promise today. Without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we head into the show today, I want to tell you about WePay. WePay helps online platforms increase revenue through integrated payments processing. Constant Contact, Equid, and GoFundMe use WePay. Why? Because WePay uniquely helps platforms offer ROI-positive integrated payments to their users within their UX and without taking on fraud and regulatory exposure. Others make you trade off between UX friction or fraud, not WePay. WePay also offers award-winning support and can even work with your team through Slack or Zendesk. Get the payments revenue you want without getting bogged down every time a user has a payments question. But don't trust me. Visit wepay.com forward slash Harry for a video case study on how Equid grew its revenue while better serving customers with WePay. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. You'll also be made eligible for a year of free premium support with wepay.com forward slash Harry. And if WePay helps you navigate the world of payments, what about the same for mentorship? Say you hired a bunch of good engineers and the best way to retain them is to have a good leadership in place. That's where Plato can help. Plato is on a mission to help engineers and engineering managers become great engineering leaders by finding them the perfect mentor. Mentors are great engineering leaders working at Google, Facebook, Lyft, Slack, Trello, you name it. And for a monthly fee, you have unlimited mentorship, advice, and coaching from them in order to help resolving challenging management situations as they arise in real time. Simply head over to PlatoHQ.com to check it out. But enough from me, so I'm now thrilled to hand over the mic to Promise on CEO at Tap Influence. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Promise, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. I was a big, big fan of your Sasta talk and a big hand to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited, Harry. Thank you. Well, I'd love though to get started with a little bit about you and how you made your way into the world of SaaS and came to be CEO at Tap Influence. That's a, a long story. Let me keep it kind of short. Um, you know, if, if I look at the, you know, I've been at TAP for about two years and two months, and um, I joined TAP for, I think, a couple reasons. So one is I feel like the idea behind influencer marketing and influence-generated content is one that is transformative, right? It's how do you take consumers and get them to create content for other consumers and inspire purchases? Mm-hmm. So I think that's was an obvious. And then secondly, I'm a little bit of a glutton for punishment. And so I wanted to take on the challenge of growing a company at the same time changing its business model. And so that was the charter at TAP was taking an agency and turning it into a software company. And so we were able to do that. So, you know, how I got here, I came to the Valley extremely early in my career. I was just out of college and joined a company called BEA Systems and started out in the product marketing and product management side of the house. Fell in love with that, started a couple of 
companies, sold a couple of companies, had a company go out of business um, at one point and had some real successes. And so what I've learned in becoming a CEO over the last 12 years is that it, it really is about the journey and making sure that as you progress in this process, in this profession, if you will, you're really taking learnings from each of those instances. And so BEA taught me about relationships. What about, uh, even what about relationships at BEA? So I joined BEA, I was probably 21. We were at the height of the, the dot-com boom. And I got to work with, was, we were like, a, how many people? A couple hundred people. And pre-IPO. And I got to work with some of the best leaders in the Silicon Valley who've gone on to start venture firms, to go be the CMO of Salesforce, to be CEOs of hundreds of companies. And what I learned from that experience of taking that company to you know become a billion dollar acquisition by Oracle in the, in the mid two thousands was that every time you're in an environment of work, what you're doing is the work, but you're also building these lasting friendships and these lasting bonds. So two things I learned from BEA, actually three things it's how to end. So when I was ready to leave BEA, it was 2002. We had been through the boom and the bust. I had been in M and a due diligence. I'd been product marketing, product management, marketing sales. I'd been in all these different parts of the organization. And I've learned from some of the best marketers and business people in the world, but also BEA went from being this highly entrepreneurial startup culture. We had taken it public to being, you know, a, a mid-sized 3000 person juggernaut, right? We led the industry. We had a different CEO and I was, I was done. And so I walked into my boss's office and this same boss has been an investor in two of my companies and was a client of one of my, one of my other companies. But I walked into her office in January of 2002 and I said, I'm done. And, I'm, and my, my last day is Friday. And she said, but it's Tuesday. <laughs> and I said, but I'm done. And she said to me, she sat me down and she said, look, um, and she, this woman's gone on to be president, senior vice president of companies like ServiceNow, Blue Coat. So she's just phenomenal business leader and technology leader. And she said, look, I've been divorced and married. And she said, my advice is to know that, that the human mind only remembers the end of a relationship and how you leave relationships and how you tie them in a bow will impact your life forever and your career. And so she said, my advice is for you to remember that people are only going to remember how you leave this company, not how you came in, not the honeymoon, not the proposal, not the anniversaries, not the wedding, none of those things. All they're going to remember is the end. And so how do you want to be remembered? And so I thought about that and went home and kind of thought about how I wanted to be remembered. And I wanted these relationships to persist. I didn't want any revenge fantasy that I had and held onto to be enacted on people who just wanted me to be successful and wanted the company to be successful. And so rather than quitting that Friday, I went, into the, I went to the CEO of BEA and I said, hey, I've got, I'm managing these four really important projects. What can I do to make this transition smooth? And I went and talked to a bunch of people in the organization and, and I came away with, it's going to be a four month transition. And so I transitioned over four or five months and I made sure that everything I was managing was done to precision, that people understood what I was working on. I worked the hardest I'd ever worked in my career in those last four months. And so I can go back now to any of those people, thousands of people at BEA, and I can rekindle those relationships because I cared about the end. One of my learnings is the workplace is chaotic. The workplace is complex, but this is also where you're building all the connective tissue for your career. And so how you end things, 
is essential to any new beginning after that. So that was one of the major takeaways from BEA, my relationship. You said there were three. What, what were the other two? Yeah. So the, the second, so the first is endings, right? That's an easy one to remember. The second is to, to realize the importance of, of mentorship and the importance of advocacy. So at BEA, I had two types of relationships. I was very early in my career. So one was, a, was mentorship. So the CEO of BEO, I consider him today and at that time to be a mentor, someone I could go to and say, hey, you know what? I'm thinking about this or I've got this problem, right? And he would say, hey, look, from my experience, this is what I learned and here's what I think you might do. An advocate is someone completely different. An advocate is someone who says, hey, I see something in you, Promise, and I want to help you realize it. And so I'm going to proactively work on your career. I'm going to proactively help you. I'm going to recommend things to you. I'm going to introduce you to people without you asking, I'm going to co-own your career aspirations with you. And I think we're always taught that mentorship is like this thing, but it's it's a mid-career phenomenon. But in the early career, I couldn't have gotten into BEA without a woman named Barbara Britton, who was my advocate, who actually like said, no, I'm going to get you this job. I'm going to help you negotiate your, your comp package. <laughs> so at different stages in our careers, I think we need different things, mm-hmm. right? But mentorship is is one aspect of what we can give people. But advocacy is actually where I spend a lot of my time now is trying to find people that I believe in and for whom I can co-own their aspirations and I can get in there with them and help them fight the early battles of their career. And so the second lesson is the importance of both, but also the distinction. Am I being an advocate for this person or am I just a passive mentor? How do you decide whether you, on, on both sides of the table, want a mentor or an advocate and then on the other side want to be a mentor or an advocate? Is there a kind of decision-making? Yeah. Ooh. Uh, so the, the advocates recruit you and I believe that they recruit you because they see something of, of themselves in you. Two, I believe they also are drawn to you because of some aspect of your personality that they believe is critical to being successful. So for instance, are you persistent? Are you humble? Are you coachable? So they're looking for something that they believe is, a, is an important attribute. So first they see something and they see a piece of themselves in you. Two, they see an attribute that they think is important. And third, they believe they can have a fantastic and significant impact on your career in a way that no one else can. And so those kinds of people become advocates, right, for others. And in terms of how I decide, so there's, I have a, a person I know really well that I, I attempted to, to be an advocate. And what I think the piece of, you know, I saw a piece of myself in them. I saw several aspects of their personality that I thought were critical. And third, I felt that I could uniquely help them hit their goals. But what wasn't aligned was that person didn't have the same level of desire and the same level of aspiration that I had for them. And so the challenge sometimes when you, if you become an advocate for someone is that you cannot want it more than they do. (laughs) (laughs) That's always a bad sign. I mean, it it is, but that's, that's what makes a career is that if you look at all the great leaders and all the most successful people, someone had their back, right? Was it their parents, a college professor, someone said, I see in you more than you see in yourself. And I'm going to get in there with you. And they took that risk. So I think it's worth it. And and then thirdly, sorry, I'm so glad I asked this question. My word, what some takeaways these are. Uh, And then thirdly, what was the third takeaway? So the third takeaway, and and I I just got the words for this recently, it's this concept of upward empathy. So recently I met someone 
someone who is a was a sales leader, and he framed this idea that in organizations, people think that management is evil, right? Like, oh, management is making the, these these people, these beings called management, are making these decisions that are having this impact on my life, and I'm not getting enough work done, or management, or management, or management. And one of the things that he helped frame for me in a concept is this whole idea of upward empathy, is that when you're working in an organization, it's very easy to mystify, but also to vilify leadership and to see that their drivers and their desires and their beliefs and their actions are somewhat anathema or are against yours as an employee. And it's not true. These are humans. They have families, they have feelings, they have flesh and they're dimensional and they have families and they have issues. They have all the same stuff that you do, but they are working with a slightly different set of lenses on the business, right? Their responsibility fundamentally is to ensure, and this is my job as CEO, is to make sure that this business is a going concern and that it is successful and that it has enough money to pay the people that are inside of it and that it can meet its customers' demands and that it's innovating, right? So you've got these higher order things that you're focused on. They don't put you in conflict with the employees, but sometimes as an employee, it feels that way. And I think management, myself included, does a really good job of holding on to those values of going concern and, you know, shareholder value and all these things at the same time, wanting to build great culture. But I I think that great cultures are built through employees who have upward empathy. And at BEA, I remember there was one instance where HP early in the business had come and had made this offer to buy our company. And we were all in this room. I was part of the high potential program at BEA. And I remember Bill Coleman kind of telling us this or alluding to it, at least. I don't want to get him in any trouble. And, uh, <laughs> subtly, uh, and subtly alluding. Subtly alluding. Uh, and I remember thinking, I remember we were all kind of like, we all stood up and we said no. And we, we could feel through empathy that he did not want to sell this company. Like this was this amazing business, this great idea. We were building middleware. Okay. I know it sounds like <laughs> when I talk about BEA that like we were fundamentally changing like education. Yeah. Poverty no. is now eradicated. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Right? No, we were building middleware, but we, we loved our company and our culture and the idea and the fact that our product was excellent. Like it was everything. And so we did not want to sell. And so we felt that, look, we have to make this company better. Our leadership is doing everything in their power. We are part of this too. And so I remember adopting this attitude of a, I'm I'm never going to blame leadership because I saw this vulnerable person and I could empathize with him, number one. But I also, I felt like I could have an impact on this thing, right? Like yeah. I could actually do something. I could work harder. I could come up with different business ideas. And so after that meeting, 16 of us got together and said, what are we going to do? And so my the two, three of us started, wrote a business plan to build an integration division on top of our platform, our middleware platform and Bill funded it. Our CEO funded it. He was like, go build this thing. And so we built what became, it could have been a hundred million dollars. It's been a while, but we built a 
whole new division on top of the company that was going after a different part of our um, our market. And it all came from just being empathetic that these leaders are doing everything in their power to make the company better and great, but that we also own this thing. This is ours. Can I ask, what can leaders do to really inspire that upward empathy? Is it a case of vulnerability? Is it a case of communication? What do you think, and do you look now with Tap Influence, to really kind of actively do to generate such upward empathy from your employees? So the answer is, I do not know how upward empathy can be kind of systematically, if, if you will, infused by leadership. But I do think, to your point, at its core is a willingness to be vulnerable because empathy is, is a human thing, right? It's like me and you connecting. It, it's, it's two people. It's where it starts at least, right? And then it emanates from there. But I think at its core, it is vulnerability and it, it's the desire as a leader for your people to feel safe with you. But again, let's go back to that human to human. You also have to feel safe with them, yeah, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, I'm, I'm watching like all these things happen in Silicon Valley that, you know, I'm watching Uber, I'm watching the sexual harassment happening to women, which is so pervasive. And it comes from this otherism, right? It comes from this idea that like, you don't have, <laughs> you don't have feelings, right? That my goals and objectives, the things I care about are at a, a different level from yours. And we all get caught in this and it disallows this empathy that we want. You want a VC to be empathetic to whomever's pitching him or her, right? Like, like right. You want them to see the passion of that entrepreneur and not to mistake it as something else, right? Absolutely. Or not to stretch it into something else. And you want that entrepreneur to feel like I can empathize with this VC. I understand that their goals and objectives are X, Y, and Z. And so I'm going to pitch them with my passion around things that are important to them. And they're hearing me not because I'm beautiful or young or attractive or interesting, but because I've got a great idea that's disruptive. And that otherism of objectification between two people happens everywhere. CEOs objectifying teams and teams objectifying CEOs. And, you know, you've got all this kind of otherism that's happening that doesn't serve anyone. Because if you're an employee and you see your CEO or your leadership team as other, well, how do I learned how to be a CEO from the BEA CEO. I learned how to be a great marketer from Lynn Voivodich, who was my boss and who became the CMO of Salesforce and is now on the board of Ford. I learned how to be a great product manager and leader from one of the great product CEOs of the Valley. I, I learned that from them because I was empathetic, that they were imperfect, but they were also highly skilled and capable in other ways. And so without empathy, you're forced into objectification, which doesn't serve you and doesn't serve the individual and doesn't serve the mission. Uh, I'd love to move into a quick fire though. I'm so glad I asked that question. Uh, completely off schedule, but fantastic. <laughs> uh, but I'd love to move into a quick fire round that we call the 60 second saster. So I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? <laughs> okay. We may edit all this out. Okay. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, it's the beauty of podcasts. What would you most like to see change in the world of VC and startups? What I'd like to see change most in VC and startups, two things. Number one, the acceptance of the hundred million to half billion dollar outcome. I, I, I want to see VCs be open to and supportive of that as an exit strategy, right? Versus needing to be a unicorn. So a, a new investment model, I guess. One, two, I, I want to see, I want to see more diversity and not just racial diversity, but I want to see diversity of management team, diversity of opinions, different 
different types of businesses, different types of founders, different business models, like just more diversity and less of this, you know, I went to Stanford, Harvard, I did this, I did that. And this, this kind of pattern that's emerged much more a supporting of businesses that get to a half billion dollar, but pro, you know, provide great return uh, and much more support for diversity from all educational, racial, gender, gender identity, like much more acceptance that the world is, is gray. I'm going to go back to VCS itself after the quick fire because I'm too, I'm too intrigued. But how are people outside the valley motivated differently to those inside the valley? Interesting. I know the valley is an interesting place and I've been here for a minute and it's people here motivated by what we see around us, which is great companies that change the world being built that create amazing wealth, but also amazing opportunity. And people here are driven by that. And I think outside the valley, people are driven, at least I can speak of my experience in in Colorado. I think people are driven much more by a desire for, for balance in their lives. And so people in the Valley realized that in order to build something that looks a certain way, it's going to require a different type of sacrifice. And so outside the Valley, I think it's, since there are fewer examples of these massive, you know, massive buildups and billion dollar and blah, 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 there are fewer Apples, there are fewer Googles, there are fewer, et cetera. Most people then look at their work as something that enables them to have the type of life that they, they aspire to. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started? All those learnings. So what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started? It's interesting. In terms of my SaaS experience, I think that the one learning has a lot. So hmm. in 60 seconds, <laughs> in 60 seconds. So, okay. One, one, one learning <laughs> that I, I wished I would have had in terms of being a SaaS CEO was, you know, I came into being a SaaS CEO, learning about this idea of a funnel. This is so practical of like this idea that like you have the top of the funnel, first touch, first touch, last shift attribution. And so I became very technical around the marketing funnel and how you, how you get revenue into the business. And what I learned in my last company, a company, an amazing company called the Resumator, which is now called Jazz, which is an NHR system and that was reinforced here at TAP is the importance of the hourglass and that shortening the funnel and extending the lifetime value of a customer has a gigantic impact on a business. So talking just about fundamentals here, how do you take a customer and how do you have just as discrete and intricate of a path for them to expand and become a three, four, five year customer as you did to get them into the business? We forget that. And so if I were to do anything differently in my, the technical part of my SaaS career, it would be to think about the customer success organization. And I learned this in my last, my last company as one of the massive drivers of revenue, like, like sales and marketing are amazing at getting customers too, but expanding and leveraging product and customer success is these two partners who are in lockstep. That is from a, an, an economic and from a fundamentals perspective, probably the most important learning that I have from as a SaaS CEO. Should customer success engage in upsell? Absolutely. Abs- and, and it's such an interesting one. As some, like, it's literally binary. Some are so yes, some are so no. Why are you so yes? My gosh, because customers at the beginning of a relationship are really, when it comes to SaaS, if you're if you're a marketing manager, a brand manager, a Procter & Gamble, how many pitches are you getting a day? How many SDRs are pushing nonsense into your, mail, your mailbox? Hundreds. And so you hear about a great product or a great idea and you want to try it, but you don't want 
want to commit. So maybe, maybe, maybe you'll throw out a few shekels a month to see what something is like. But when that spark happens, you need not only for a trusted customer success person to maybe not close you, but to help you see the value of an expanded relationship. And then you need the product team to understand this. It's about the spark, but it's about what happens after the spark. So imagine if we killed the funnel and we built an hourglass and we thought about getting our customers into the company and into the product quickly, having a massive experience for them, and then expanding into other products and capabilities, not only driven by the customer success team, but by the product itself. All about that spark and that moment of trust from the customer that becomes the long-term profitable relationship. I, I do want to discuss, though, before we finish today, uh, one thing, uh, we, 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 I'm so sorry, we seem to have completely avoided tap influence just in your incredible learnings. So let's finish on tap influence, because in terms of the journey, so I'm intrigued, when was this decision uh, and what does it take to get there successfully to shift from the services model to a product-driven model? Oh my gosh. So quickly, the decision was made before I joined. It was made by the board and I was brought on to execute against this decision because I had done that in my past. Services to software. And I think the most important piece of it, because you do it in stages, right? You do business model, then you do ICP customer, right? You kind of figure that out. And then you build a product. So you're kind of incrementally doing it, do it as fast as possible. And things get broken. Things are messy and chaotic for a period. I know a lot of companies, most of our competitors who started out as agencies tried to make the shift and are now agencies again. I think the most important thing is to do it quickly and to make sure that everyone knows glass will be broken (laughs) in this process. And for your board to be fully supportive that you may lose every ounce of revenue. We did not. We actually grew, but it's really... So this decision was made. The company was started in 2009 as this really great idea around connecting brands and influencers. The decision was made to bring on a CEO to execute again this in 2014. They found me in 2015. And then within three quarters, we had made the shift and it was very difficult. But I look back and I'm looking in a room right now and I've got dozens of engineers and product people and data scientists, and they are most of the company now. Whereas when I joined, it was mostly services and consulting and delivery people and very few engineers. And so it's it's a fundamental shift that takes a lot of courage on the part of the board and the investors. But I, I give my founders, and my board and my investors a ton of kudos to betting and believing that we could do this and we did and I'm, I'm really proud of it. I, I do want to ask I do want to ask one final question where it's kind of two-sided uh, and it's you said about the challenges there. What were the fundamental challenges and you also said about the increasing revenue there. Very uncommon in the shift as this is normally done. Uh, so how did you look to minimize churn then through this process? So the challenges and then how did you minimize churn? And, and when you say churn do you mean actual customer churn? Yeah in the Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, t- so tactically, I'm not sure if that's your question, but tactically, you know, one of the first things that we did was we we looked at our, our customers and we said, okay, who do we think the ice the ideal customer profile is? And so we came up with a couple of potential profiles, and then we compared that to our most successful customers, meaning the customers who could self service and the customers who had certain attributes. And then we 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 stack ranked by size. Okay, this customer is not our ICP, but they're huge. And so we just started having conversations with them and saying, hey look, customer, we're, we're making a conversion from this model to that model. And right now you fit, but in, in a year it, you won't fit. And so can we, can we convert you to being one of these new types of customers? Can we sustain you as a services customer so that this, the transition is smooth for you? Or can we help you find another solution that might be better in the short term? And so I could go into more detail.
detail, but the way that we minimized churn is we essentially kept and converted 80% of our largest customers to this new self-service model. And we gave them, based on size, a number of quarters to make that transition. And they all did. And so that was the way that we minimized churn. But going forward, as you think about scaling, right? Because when you're a services business, you're serving a niche, small market. As a SaaS company, you want to serve a large market, right? You've you got TAM now and Sam, you've got investors who want multiples and returns. And so going forward, we had to re-identify our ICP. So we are now on ideal customer profile 2.1. So we've had you know two major shifts and one minor shift in who our ideal customer is. And so that reduces churn going forward. So who's our ideal customer? How do we acquire and retain them? And we have more history so we can look back over two years and say, oh, our ideal customer is actually this one based on LTV CAC ratio, based on renewal, based on satisfaction, and based on activity and usage. And so we can now incrementally improve our ICP to reduce churn going forward based on our most loyal, happy, successful customers. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Uh, It it absolutely does. Uh, But I I do have to say, from watching the Sasta video that you you did this year at Sasta Annual, I knew it was going to be a fantastic episode, uh, but it's absolutely blown me away. I'm sure there will be many more successful Tap Influence customers, and I can't thank you enough for giving up the time today to be on the show. Hey, Harry, this has been phenomenal. So thank you for taking the time to interview me, and I hope it was helpful. And I'd like to give a huge hand to Promise for such a fantastic episode. And you can follow Promise on Twitter at PromiseFelon. You can follow me on Snapchat at HDebbings with two Bs. Or you can follow the main man at Sasta, Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK. It'd be fantastic to see you on those respective platforms. But before we leave you today, I want to tell you about WePay. WePay helps online platforms increase revenue through integrated payments processing. Constant Contact, Equid, and GoFundMe use WePay. Why? Because WePay uniquely helps platforms offer ROI-positive integrated payments to their users within their UX and without taking on fraud and regulatory exposure. Others make you trade off between UX friction or fraud, not WePay. WePay also offers award-winning support and can even work with your team through Slack or Zendesk. Get the payments revenue you want without getting bogged down every time a user has a payments question. But don't trust me. Visit WePay.com forward slash Harry for a video case study on how Equid grew its revenue while better serving customers with WePay. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. You'll also be made eligible for a year of free premium support with WePay.com forward slash Harry. And if WePay helps you navigate the world of payments, what about the same for mentorship? Say you hired a bunch of good engineers, and the best way to retain them is to have a good leadership in place. That's where Plato can help. Plato is on a mission to help engineers and engineering managers become great engineering leaders by finding them the perfect mentor. Mentors are great engineering leaders working at Google, Facebook, Lyft, Slack, Trello, you name it. And for a monthly fee, you have unlimited mentorship, advice, and coaching from them in order to help resolving challenging management situations as they arise in real time. Simply head over to PlatoHQ.com to check it out. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.